Hey, this is Jason from Slapdash, and this episode is sponsored by 606 Iron, located in the Big M Plaza in Whitley City, Kentucky. 606 Iron has cardio equipment, free weights, numerous weight training machines, weekly kettlebell classes, and tanning beds. Stop by 606 Iron for membership information or call 606-310-4918. History, art, science, and everything else. They slap down a new topic and dash off to next. It's a great big world with so much to know. Like cryptids, time travel, and the history of Poe. If you want to be a smarty, better learn something fast. With Shannon and Jason on Slapdash Podcast. Shannon, one of the most popular horror movies in recent years is The Conjuring. However, like many movies, The Conjuring was based on actual events. Today, we are excited to welcome Miss Andrea Perrin, who actually lived through the events on which The Conjuring was based. Miss Perrin is the author of the House of Darkness, House of Light series, which documents the fascinating events that Andrea and her family experienced while living in a farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. Miss Perrin, welcome to Slapdash, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, you know, and I can share with your listeners that I've had uh, the most enjoyable time getting to know both of you prior to coming on your podcast. And uh, I consider it an honor and a privilege to join you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. We we greatly appreciate that. And uh, Shannon, anything you'd like to say before before I begin the uh, the questioning here? I'm just sitting here uh, being a fanboy right now. It's just uh, kind of <laughs> surreal talking to Andrea, we've been so excited, and we've kind of hyped this up in conversations over the weeks, and just really happy you were able to join us. And I think this will be a fun experience for the listeners too. They're they're looking forward to hearing from you. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. Okay, so we will go ahead and begin. Uh, I guess with, with with my first question here. So uh, just take us back a little bit to that faithful day. All right, so it's it's moving day, and you and your family arrive at the farmhouse. You're carrying boxes uh, and, and so forth into the house. How long were you actually there before you noticed something odd or something different about this environment? In the time that it took to take a box off the back of the moving van, walk across the front lawn, across the driveway, into the door to the parlor, and to take a right into the dining room. In whatever length of time that was, probably a minute, um, my whole world changed. That was uh, my first official paradigm shift in life, and I didn't even realize it yet because the entity that I saw looked absolutely solid to me. And all that I thought about him was that he was either a friend or a neighbor of the owner of the house who was there moving out as we were moving in. And the only thing that I remember thinking about him was that he was dressed oddly. And I went into the kitchen and I said, Mom, who's the man with Mr. Kenyon? And she said, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way. He's not here yet. And I knew that my father had said, drop the box off and, you know, come right back out. And I had paused long enough to say good morning to Mr. Kenyon, who was um, standing at the dining room table packing a box. And then that's when I turned to go into the kitchen and I saw the man standing in the doorway of the alcove. And I said, good morning, sir, as I passed him. And he didn't respond to me. He looked right through me. He was absolutely fixated watching Mr. Kenyon. And 
My sister Nancy, my sister Christine, and my sister Cindy all saw him, and my sister Nancy saw him vaporize into oblivion, gone, invisible. And she came into the kitchen and leaned over and said to Cindy, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? I did, but he just disappeared. Wow. And that's when we knew four of the five children, April was in the kitchen with my mother. She was only five and she was too young to be moving boxes of any size. So she stayed in the house helping mom unpack the boxes and the last boxes that went on the truck in Cumberland, Rhode Island came off the box, uh, the, the truck in Harrisville, Rhode Island, and they were all marked kitchen. So that was our path to the kitchen through the warm house instead of walking the whole length of the house to go in the other door. And we kind of came through and went through in a circle and we saw him again about the entity um, manifested about maybe two hours later. And my father was standing in the dining room with us, with Mr. Kenyon and myself and Nancy and Christine and Cindy. And he appeared again. And that's when I realized he wasn't a solid, living, breathing human being. We all kind of glanced at each other and looked at each other and then looked at Mr. Kenyon and looked at my father. And they were standing in the same room with him and they didn't see him and we did. And that's when all of us knew that this was a whole new adventure in life, nothing that any of us had ever encountered before. And we knew not to say anything about it. That is incredible. Just from the get-go, it sounds like this was uh, an adventure. It was just a completely unreal experience. Yeah, it was, um, it was unreal. It was surreal. It was ultra-real. It was reality, but it was reality in different times. You know, that was the thing. We never knew if it was 1972 or 1687 or 1736. We didn't know what we were going to see and when, in what time. Um, it wasn't until, you know, I always had trouble wrapping my mind around the idea of time travel. It just seemed to me that time as we perceive it is, is more of, a, of an elusive thing and that it really is a machination of uh, human consciousness, how we compartmentalize our lives. And, you know, Mike, the conflict, um, I have cerebral conflict before this interview was over. You're going to be really clear on that. The conflict is that if we are able to see someone else in either another dimension or another time period, and I'll explain that further in a moment, then what does that mean? If you extrapolate that out, what does that mean in terms of the existence of time? You know, I mean, the real question is, does time as we know it exist? Why are we afforded glimpses of other periods of time in a house that is pushing 300 years old? You know, when we lived there, it was, well, it was completed as it stands now in 1736. The land was deeded for it in 1680. Uh, it was a house that was begun as a four square and just grew and grew and grew as the family grew. And uh, it became, it was built by the Richardson family and it became the old Arnold estate through marriage. But for eight generations, one extended family lived and died in that house. And I guarantee you, some of them either never left 
or visit regularly. Right. And, and uh, you mentioned in other interviews we've seen that there, there are several recurring entities that you saw in the house. And also your discussion about time leads to a, another interesting question. How often did you actually see the manifestation of, of entities in the house? Was it such a regular occurrence that it would be daily? Would it be weekly? I know that you and your family resided in the house for a number of years. and uh, Yeah, 10 years, almost 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. So how, yeah, how often right. would these sort of things uh, appear to you all? Well, considering there were um, six or seven of us in the house, you know, most of the time when we weren't away at school, I would say somebody saw something or felt something on virtually a daily basis. But sometimes that something was so minor that it was easy to dismiss, if that makes any sense. Mm. It was like, oh, yeah, okay, that. You know, I mean, and we did over time, we did get used to it. It became just a regular part of our livingness in the house just through repetition. And if you don't feel a threat and you don't feel, uh, that you know, that there's anything either. I mean, there are different kinds. We had, and I think we talked about this privately too, about the whole notion of protection. Um, we had spirits in the house that we all felt were protective of us, the children. Um, and then we had, uh, we had to figure out a way to protect ourselves from, there was an evil entity in that house and she predominantly targeted my mother and she coveted us, the five children. So when she would make her presence known, it was a necessity to protect yourself, to be become on high alert, to get ready to just uh, bolt out of the room if you had to or if you could. Um, but my sister Cindy described the sensation of being trapped in a bubble that, you know, kind of like our NBA at Disney right now. They're in the bubble. Well, so were <laughs> we. we. We grew up in the bubble. We did. And when you're having uh, an altercation, a one-to-one connection with spirit, it, everything else, you, it's, it's, I believe it's in a different dimension. And that, uh, that's why you can scream at the top of your lungs and no one can hear you. Uh, and that happened so repeatedly. That was such a, it literally became a normal part of our, our paranormal childhood that you could call for help and no one would come because no one heard you because where you were yelling from was an entirely different place and a different time. Wow, that's that's inc- that's incredible. So, Andrea, I have a question here sort of in regard to that. I know you said uh, originally, or at least initially, that uh, you and your uh, your siblings uh, were the ones that were, were seeing these uh, entities and, and, and hearing things. A- at what point did your parents become aware of this? Well, my mother became aware in odd ways. My mother became aware by things happening that were inexplicable other than the existence of spirit. And because that hadn't even occurred to her yet, my mother is, uh, has, remains steeped in history. She could be a history professor. She could teach world history. Um, she's read thousands and thousands of books in her life. And she's just, I like to just affectionately call her my sweet little brainiac. Um, <laughs> 
she, she really is an amazing woman. And the reason that she was so enticed and so excited about the farmhouse was because of its history, because it was one of the, and is one of the original colonial farmhouses that are left in America. And there aren't many, you know, and, and it's easier to find them in New England, but they are usually long-standing family homes, not coming up for sale. Uh, you know, that that farm had literally been in the same family, the same extended family until we bought it. We were the original outsiders. We were the intruders. Hmm. And the spirit that I saw, the man that I saw uh, originally walking into the house was uh, someone who actually, we believe, lived in that house. And all of the spirits that we've encountered uh, over the years, I believe, either lived in that house or frequented that house. Um, Bathsheba Sherman never lived in that house. She was not of the Arnold clan. She was born of the, a combination of the, the Thayer and Taft families, which were both very prominent families that were in Providence um, and were instrumental in the building of Brown University. She came to the colonies as a young uh, woman of means, actually was probably and may have even been born in the colonies. I don't know, but she was quite young when she married Judson Sherman, young by standards today, uh, maybe 16 or 17 years old, and moved out to Sherman Farm Road and lived adjacent to what was our property, uh, which at the time was, I think when it was deeded, it was a couple of thousand acres. I do know that the original, uh, the oldest identifiable cemetery for the property is more than a mile and a half away. So it was a very sizable piece of property. When we bought it, it had 200 acres left. And so we got the house, the barn, 200 acres, uh, a pond, um, and a beautiful little creek known as the Nipmuc River that flowed through the back of the mm -hmm. property at the bottom of the hill. It was an absolutely magnificent, it was just pastoral beauty. It was the very best of New England, and my mother fell in love with the history of the house, that it had existed there that long. She had no idea that she would almost freeze to death in that house, as all of us just about did, mm. um, or hyperventilate from the heat in the summer. It was nothing but clapboard on clapboard and no insulation. And it was, we moved from a very comfortable little Cape Cod. You know, when you live in New <laughs> England, you, you need to have heat, you know, and <laughs> right. uh, yeah. there was at least for part of the year. And uh, there was a dramatic shortage of heat in that house. And we had to quickly learn the difference between natural cold and supernatural cold. Because sometimes when the entities would approach us or be near us, uh, the temperature around us would drop like a rock and you could just suddenly feel a shift in the temperature and you would smell something rancid and and then all of a sudden you could see either a gray mist or what appeared to be a partial outline, almost holographic in nature. Uh, it's so hard to explain unless you've seen it, you know, unless mm -hmm. you've actually had the experience. It is very difficult to describe, but it was... Uh, it was a very interesting way to grow up. And my books bear absolutely no resemblance to the film at all. 
the the producers of the film wanted to include elements of the true story in the film and every time the screenwriters who had read the books and like totally freaked out over them and said, Oh my God, this is like way more intense than anything we wrote. And um, they uh, tried to integrate them into the script and the big bosses at new line cinema and Warner brothers, which were their producers uh, studios uh, for the project had them redact it every single time. They tried seven times to put some of the truth of what happened in that house into the screenplay and the and you know even hollywood bosses like you know the guys that sit behind like the biggest desk you can imagine they're fear-based carbon units just like the rest of us (laughs) (laughs) sure and that that leads to a a good question actually one that i'd I'd wanted to ask for a while and we talked about this a little bit previously when when all of us touched base prior to the interview a few weeks ago and that's just simply you know we have the account from the books house of darkness house of light and then we also have the account from the movie the conjuring andrea what what do you feel was the most accurate about the the movie what did they get right and what part was what part or parts do you think they just kind of missed the mark in terms of what actually happened well i think that um in the um in the grand scheme of things the overall arching impression that uh, the viewer is left with after watching the conjuring is uh threefold uh first and foremost good conquers evil the second impression is love conquers fear and the third impression and the most telling and the most truthful of all is that the parent family did indeed endure a truly frightening and enlightening haunting that they all survived. And so those are the impressions that people are left with, I think. But the detail, it's in the detail that so much of the story got lost. And I don't blame them for that because I cannot imagine trying to compress our story into two hours. It's virtually impossible. Mm. So what they basically did was they did some, I guess, cherry picking. The film is based predominantly on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. And they even took, what do you call, uh, literary license Mm -hmm. with that story Mm. as well, um, with their recollections as well. Um, and of course, because the entire series the, that began with The Conjuring, now known as The Conjuring Universe, is just a whole series of films, and it's all based on different case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. So um, we were just the first, but certainly not the last. Sure. Yeah, and, it's become a whole know, big franchise unit at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. But it was because of the success of our story, and it was because people... You know, and I don't blame the bo- the bosses at Warner Brothers. I don't because one of them said to James Wan, the director, you know, James, um, we're not going to make a movie where nobody stays to watch it until the end. What's the point? Mm. You know, I mean, if you run your audience off before the film is over, then what's the point? And I understand that. I mean, they're investing millions and millions of dollars of their own money into bringing this story to the silver screen. And so even though I was a consultant, 
they didn't really listen to much of what I said. <laughs> um, and I'm really kind of glad about that because had it not been for The Conjuring, uh, my story, I believe, my story, my family's intimate collective memoir would languish in obscurity like a billion other books. Wow. That's, yeah, that, yeah. that's incredible. So, uh, you know, the, I, I sort of think of the, uh, the uh, yin and yang symbol. Right with the, you know, the darkness and light, and and how d- definitely it was a mixture, you know, uh, according to your testimony. So uh, I think maybe each of us have a question in regard to that. So I'll I will ask my question first, sort of on on the darkness side of things. Uh, what was the most terrifying thing you experienced while living uh, in the house? Hands down, no competition was the night of the seance. Um, in the film, it was portrayed as an exorcism. My mother was not possessed. Some people that were in the house that night do believe she was possessed. But I saw my mother get attacked that night. And whatever it was that came into her left as abruptly as it came into her. It was not what you would consider to be, if there is such a thing, a conventional possession. Um, but it was an encounter and a very close encounter with my mother and whatever it was, was evil. And it had all the power that it ever could need to have claimed her life that night. And it let her live. It allowed her to live, but it made its presence known to everyone else in that house. And I never, ever want to experience anything like it again for the rest of my life. So on the other side of that, as Jason mentioned, so that's kind of the, the dark side of the, uh, the whole experience. But your book is called House of Darkness, House of Light. And in the book, uh, you mentioned that the, the farmhouse was home and you were heartbroken when it was sold. Um, what were your favorite good memories from the house? Oh, there would be too many to even tell you in the interview, um, but suffice to say that it truly is the only place everything else on earth feels temporary to me. Like I'm here now for this time, but the only place that I actually feel completely at ease, completely at home is at the farm. And yet people are surprised when I tell them that I will never live there again, that I would not want to live there again. And it's not at all because I have any fear of that house. I don't. I don't ever want to be that physically uncomfortable again for the rest of my life. I'm old now. I'm going to be 62 in a few weeks. You know, I, I'm never shoveling snow again. I'm not doing it. I'm not. I'm not doing it. I have shoveled hundreds of feet of snow in my life. I'm quite sure. I didn't keep count, but I'm pretty sure it's in the hundreds. And uh, just the just the blizzard of 78, we had 56 inches of snow. Had to, just getting out between the house and the barn was the workout of the century. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not. I live in paradise now. I live in Florida. I live in the most beautiful place on a lake in the heart of Florida, away from direct hits from hurricanes and not far from Disney so that I can see the flashes of light in the sky. Um, It's about a half an hour's drive away from me, and when it's overcast, I can hear the distant booms and see the lights flashing uh, on the, the beneath the clouds. That, that, that's awesome. How, how old were you when, you when you left Rhode Island? I was 21 when we moved from the farm. It really fractured our family because 
half of us never wanted to leave the farm and half of us never wanted to see it again. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very difficult thing that our family went through. And actually, uh, a good bit of volume three of the trilogy is devoted to that subject. I thought it would be the easiest of the three books, Um, you know, kind of wind the story down and move on and, you know, what happened after we left the house and all of that. Um, But it turned out to be the most emotionally difficult to write because it really was very hard to leave that place behind. It was for me. It was for my father. Nancy was so angry at my parents for selling the farm that she went to the new owners who she just happened to be a babysitter for. They had a couple of little kids. And she said, I know you want to do work to the house. If you want me to, I'll stay on as the caretaker, you know, indefinitely. And they were thrilled because they had no intention of moving into it. And they didn't want to, you know, leave it abandoned. It was a danger. That's a dangerous thing to do with any house. So um, Nancy stayed on. And then eventually her boyfriend moved in and he was a direct descendant of the family that built that house. And when Eddie was in that house, all hell broke loose in that house. And living in that house changed that man. And he was only a young man. He was 19, 20 years old. Mm. You know, it was uh, very tragic. Um, So Nancy's boyfriend committed suicide. My boyfriend committed suicide. My first boyfriend. And was also deeply, deeply affected by that house. And his father, who was also deeply affected by that house. They were our neighbors. Um, He committed suicide. Our Our friend Fran had a paranormal experience in the house that was so extreme um she was hit with a bolt of light in the house and um it went into her stomach area and she developed stomach cancer mm-hmm. and she died not too long after we moved away from uh Rhode Island uh there were a lot of people that died prematurely that were associated with that house that came there as friends of ours and didn't live out their full lives well, Andrea, is is there ever a day in your life that that goes by that you don't think about those events at least at least one time during the day during the course of a day? Do you, do you ever have days where you just never think about it? Well, that's an erudite question. Um, there are many days that I don't think about it, not consciously. I think subconsciously, it is always with me. People frequently ask me if I dream about the farm. I dream about the farm frequently, but they aren't nightmares. In general, they're not. Sometimes they're anxiety dreams, like there'll be too many people there, and I don't understand why there are so many people there, and I feel overwhelmed by people in the house, you know, um, that type of thing. But not where I have any kind of negative uh altercation with spirit or anything like that i never really did uh i was the one that was spared that and i think that they knew that i wrote about them i kept journals about the things that happened in the house which i relied heavily upon uh when i was um composing the trilogy i mean it's 1500 pages and covers more than 10 years you know it really is an epic story it's a saga in its own right and it's got a cast of characters both living and dead that are hard to wrap your mind around but once you get into it and you sense the timelessness of it the swirling ethereal timelessness of it then at the end of it it all makes sense it all follows like it's been you know put on a venn diagram in your in your conscious mind 
but I tell my readers there's there's a way to read the trilogy. And it begins chronologically and it ends chronologically. But from the moment that we step onto that farm as owners to the moment that we leave the farm in 1980, in June of 1980, the stories are intermingled in such a way that they're really told based on the type of haunting that it was because there were so many, such a wide variety, really a, a myriad of events which occurred over those 10 years. And I mean, it could have actually been twice as long, but would have become seriously redundant because there are just so many ways that they can manifest in form. And I think we saw every way that they could conceivably harness that energy and manifest in form in some type of form or another. Wow, that, that's incredible. And that actually sort of transitions right into my, my next question. I know that we, uh, we had talked earlier about some of these entities, uh, some of the voices that you and your siblings heard. Can, can you talk a little bit more about, uh, there was a certain phrase that I know that you said that you, uh, that you and your family repeatedly heard these voices say. Could, could you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, it was um, my sister Cindy. Nobody else in the family heard it except Cindy. Oh, okay, and I understand. She could not wrap her mind around the fact that no one else heard what she was hearing. And what she heard was uh, a number of kind of monotone voices repeating over and over ad nauseum. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. And they would all speak at once. And she said it was almost like they all had the same exact voice, but you could hear the different voices. And um, you could hear that they were layered on each other. But um, she said sometimes it would be so loud that she would hide her head under the pillow and um, when she started to feel like her bed was vibrating, that the floor underneath her was vibrating from the volume of it, she would bolt out of bed and run into my room and throw herself in bed with me. And I woke up with Cindy in my bed a multitude of times during the years that we lived there. Mm. And that's what she told me. And that started, I would say, uh, if we all recall correctly, within the second or third night that we were in the house. That that. That is incredible. Wow. I, I have chill bumps just hearing that. Yeah. Sh Shannon and I are just sort of uh, sitting here just staring at each other like, uh, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my gosh. <laughs> Goodness. Well, let me tell you about the light. Let me tell you about the redemptive quality of that beautiful farmhouse. Um, after the seance, my mother went downhill drastically. Uh, she was as thin as a, a railroad tie. She was trying to live on coffee and cigarettes. She was exhausted all the time, all the time. And one night I had, I had made, uh, we had this really awesome pressure cooker and I had made beef stew for my sisters when I came home and I realized that mom was in bed and there was nothing being prepared for dinner. Um, you know, I was 15 years old. I was perfectly capable of cooking and often did a lot of the cooking to help her out. And um, she was obviously suffering. She was obviously deeply distracted and kind of lost to us for a period of time. And she came out of her bedroom. I made stew for the girls and got everybody fed and off to bed, homework done, done. You know, I was just being surrogate mother for the night. And I was sitting on the sofa in the parlor 
and had built a fire because it was October and it was cold. Um, in fact, I might have been 16. It might have happened after my birthday, which is October 10th. But I know it was that year and that month anyway. And uh, 1974. And she um, came out of her bedroom and stood in front of the fireplace and was warming her hands and asked me what I made for dinner. Uh, it was about maybe 1030 at night. And I told her I made beef stew. And she said, I'm hungry. And that was truly, truly a wonderful thing for me to hear that my mother wanted to eat. And as I bounced up off the sofa and told her I'd go warm some up for her, she asked me to make a short pot of coffee. And um, I went through the dining room, which was completely closed down, through the front foyer hallway, through the kitchen, into the pantry. So I was, you know, dozens and dozens of feet away from her. The house had been all closed down for the night. It was completely dark in the dining room. She leaned over into the wood box, pulled out another log, moved the screen from in front of the fireplace, and threw the log on the fire. And when she did that, she heard laughter behind her and stood upright and turned around. And there was an entire family sitting in our dining room at furniture that was not our own, that was obviously hand-hewn oak, a table, two benches, the fireplace that had been closed shut for more than a hundred years when we moved into that house was wide open and there was a woman in a full-length dress who was stirring a pot of beef stew over an open flame. There were two men sitting at the table. They each had a pewter stein in front of them. Pewter was outlawed for eating and drinking in the 1800s, so we can only presume that it was sometime in the 1700s that she was looking at. And the woman told the two children that were in the room to take their seats on their bench at the table. And she moved the stew with a hook over to the table that had lights of candles and a lamp light, uh, oil lamp. And she just stared at them, just stared at them having their dinner in our dining room. Uh, and one of the two men that was sitting at the table turned and looked into the parlor and made eye contact with my mother. And he smiled. And then he nudged the man beside him and pointed my mother out to his friend. And my mother was the ghost that they were seeing. So she was simultaneously gazing back into the past while they were gazing into the future. It made sense to her. My pragmatic Virgo mother, it finally made sense to her that we were in different dimensions simultaneously at those moments. And you mentioned before that there were not just the not just the bad, but also the good entities, the one that you said were very protective of the children. Could, could you talk yeah. a little bit more about that? Any specific instances where you recall just the, the good entities of the house being protective? There was a spirit that would routinely walk through the upstairs of the house at night um, when everybody was, you know, just falling into a deep sleep. What would happen was we would feel a presence. We would feel something hovering over us. And she always smelled like flowers and fruit. She had a very distinct, very sweet aroma, and it wasn't cold around her. Um, in fact, it was warm. It was loving. And she would lean over us as though she was kissing us on the forehead goodnight. And we knew it wasn't our mother because our mother always smelled like she had just bathed in ivory soap. That was her scent, ivory soap. And so 
we knew it wasn't her. And since she had already come upstairs and made sure the little ones, the littler ones were tucked in tight, um, there would be no need for her to come back up uh, other than to check on us. But repeatedly over the, all the years that we lived there, we felt the presence of that woman and she would just make the rounds through the house late at night. And uh, a few times uh, there are those of us that remember feeling that presence and opening our eyes, but we never saw anything, but we could feel her. So as, as you've described all of these experiences, they've very obviously shaped who you've become and what you've been able to do through the writing of the books. And you're also a guest speaker. We, we've watched several of your interviews with Fascination. How do you think your life would have been different if it had not been for the farmhouse? Uh, I have absolutely no way of knowing that. Um, it, uh, it could have, as is true with all of our lives, there are pivotal moments that occur in all of our lives that shape who we are and who we become. And, you know, I have a degree in philosophy, so I've been having that internal argument for many, many decades now, more than I'd like to count about free will versus determinism and whether or not we each have a destiny. But if we have a destiny, then I have fulfilled mine because I felt um, even from as a young child that we were supposed to live in that house, that we were supposed from the moment I saw the place, it was from the moment I saw the village of Harrisville mm. for the first time, I felt a sense of familiarity with the place that I cannot explain. And the day that we moved out of that house and everybody had tears in their eyes and it was a very painful goodbye, leaving Nancy behind. It was, uh, it was a very emotional day. And, uh, and I said to my mother, I'm leaving my, my home. And she said, I always knew we bought this place for you. Hmm. Wow, that's, that's, that's incredible. I love having this conversation with the two of you. This is wonderful. You know, I get to revisit my past over and over and over again in a wide variety of interviews. But it, I have to tell you personally, it truly is a pleasure to speak with gentlemen that know what they're talking about. It really is so different having familiarized yourself with the true story. I'm not being showered with one question after another after another about the discrepancies between the true story and the film. And, and that's a, a very nice departure for me because I do a lot of interviews where I have to basically run the interview because they don't know anything. To, sometimes don't even know that I wrote books, let alone, you know, I mean, they saw the movie three times and we're like, let's get her on, you know? And so I feel, I feel compelled to, to go on and, and kind of set the record straight, you know, and try to fill them in on some details and, and, uh, and clarify some points. But uh, this is this is uh, really a pleasure for me to be asked such intelligent, thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, you are very welcome. And, and obviously, you know, we know uh, movies are, are based or oftentimes based on events. And and that's great. We all love the movies. But but honestly, your story is way more fascinating than, than the movie. Much more compelling. You know, so that that's, yeah. you know, that's definitely where we want to lean more to the movies. The movie's really interesting and, it, and it's great. And, and I understand why it's popular but you know when we started to dig into this i'm you know we were like well you know her story is actually much more fascinating than this movie is 
And so you know, we just wanted to kind of draw a, a difference there. Again, we want to acknowledge the movie, but but we greatly appreciate uh, you taking the time to uh, to just humor us here and uh, and just to uh, be able to to answer our questions. And and we just want to give you the opportunity to tell your story because it's 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 remarkable. It's it's something else, and obviously it's it's affected you you know throughout throughout your entire life. And so I guess maybe my my next question would be because this is something that that I often think about if if this were me okay if I were you and and this had happened to me uh, obviously you know I would be thinking about you know these things throughout uh, throughout my life but uh, have you ever really noticed anything like uh, profound something to that degree in terms of intensity something that you've experienced uh, in in adulthood away from that house that you think has ties to that house Honest to God, this is a case where the truth is stranger than fiction. The Conjuring is predominantly a fictionalized product. What actually happened to all of us in different ways uh, over, it's very complicated because we're seven very unique individuals, my family, my mother, my father, and my four sisters. But when my sister April passed away in March of 2017, and she was the baby. Uh, she was only three weeks away from her 52nd birthday when she died. And it absolutely shattered and fractured our family in every conceivable way. Uh, because it was so unexpected. It was so sudden. And it was uh, so cruel that she should have been taken from us the way that she was. She suffered uh, an accidental prescription drug overdose taking in the the prescriptive level what her surgeon had told her to take the night prior to her surgery and um it was and it stopped her heart when her daughter went to pick her up to take her to the hospital the next morning um she found her body and it just blew our whole family to smithereens um i mean i can't to this day even understand how my mother survived it. She collapsed uh, when she was told that April was gone. But April's not gone at all. Please trust me when I tell you that my most manipulative, most arrogant, most bodacious sister makes her presence known to our family so regularly that I even accused her once of not giving me a chance to miss her. And uh, in fact, my dear friend Chip Coffey, who is a world-renowned medium, uh, called me last night. He's like, I got a message for you from April. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. And he used exactly the phrase that I had heard out of her mouth a thousand times in her life. Get over yourself, Andrea. Oh my gosh. That, that is, yeah. that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Because she knew without me saying a word to him, she knew that I'd been sitting here talking with my mother about things that I would have liked to say to her that I didn't have a chance to. And that's what, you know, and her message right from through him was there's nothing left unsaid, unfelt, undone. Everything is perfect. You know, everything is perfect. Everything is fine. You know, and she's such an Aries. She was such an Aries and obviously still is. And wherever she is and whatever she's up to, I know that I will be with her again. And that in life, amends were made. We had a tumultuous relationship. She was my polar opposite, you know, so we had our fair share of arguments over our lifetime. But she, um, you know, she left this world knowing that she was 
deeply, deeply loved by every member of her family. And not everybody gets that chance. You know, not everybody does. Your story is so fascinating and, and, and touching and it's uh, it's certainly one for the ages. It's something that I'm so happy we were able to dive into and, and talk to you about. And I'm just curious now as you as you move forward, you're you're um, you're an author. You are uh, you you've consulted on on one of the biggest movie franchises in American cinema history. I think The Conjuring grossed something like three hundred and nineteen million dollars. It was a huge critical success. And uh, as you look toward the future. What, what do you foresee going forward? And I guess that would be our final question. Where What's the next step for Andrea Perrin? I've been working with a, a good friend of mine. We're um, writing the screenplays for, I have a three movie deal whenever Hollyweird decides to open up again. Uh, I've got an executive producer and lots of great people that I've been working with over the last several years to um, make the trilogy into a series of feature films. And the first screenplay is done to my satisfaction. The second one is underway. And the third one, by the time we get there, will pretty much write itself. But it tells our story the way I've envisioned it, the way I wanted the story to be told, you know, without turning it into a a freaking miniseries. I mean, because it could (laughs) be. It really could be. It's just, it's so big. It's so huge. But I think that people get a lot out of reading the books, reading, you know, reading the story and assimilating what's in it and then to see the films you know they'll see immediately what had to be cut out and so on and so forth but it will be an accurate rendition of life at the farm uh from my family's perspective uh and will include of course you know the brief period of time that the uh the warrens came and went out of our lives but we lived there for seven more years after the warrens disappeared and uh there were so there were many many things that were never even included in their um, case files because they didn't know about them. So it was uh, it was a real challenge. It took me a couple of years to... I wrote a 765-page screenplay. We are now honing that down into three stand-on-their-own um, screenplays that tell the whole story of the time that my family spent at the farm. And once it's done, which I imagine now, since everything's closed like a steel trap and there's, you know, virtually nothing being filmed in terms of feature films uh, around the country right now, uh, it's really a case of hurry up and wait. But Mm. it will be worth the wait because I think that I have a great deal of respect for the intellect of my viewers and my readers. And I really do believe that people are ready for this. People are ready for the truth. They can handle the truth. They can. <laughs> it's not going to run them out of the theater. They're going to be transfixed. Well, that sound that sounds awesome. And and Andrea, you know, as these films begin to be made, if 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 you happen to be in need of like two extras you know, maybe could carry some boxes, maybe in the background oh, no. or whatever. Hey, I, I know a couple of guys in Kentucky that might be able to help you out there. Oh, okay. But, you know, I'm telling you what, you know, I, and I hate to tell you this, but you guys have Southern accents. <laughs> we wouldn't fit in, in a, a Maine-based story this. or Rhode yeah, Island-based so story. There is up. no, surely not. Surely not. <laughs> I'm just joking. Unless, 
Unless you can master a good Yankee accent, you can only be extras and no speaking. No roles. speaking part. We can just wave. Yeah. Maybe we can just wave. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Andrea, thank you for opening up your, your life to us here. Uh, I've tremendously enjoyed this interaction, and hopefully we can stay in touch. And I look forward to all of the great success you have in your future. And, you know, just thanks for being part of the show. I have seen the dark side of existence. I choose every day to live in the light. I believe in the power of love. I believe in the power of redemption. I believe in healing and the wholeness and the oneness of humanity. And so I will leave you on that hopefully uplifting note and in high spirits, my friends. What an unbelievable way to, to, to end this tonight. We That's just perfect. we cannot thank you uh, uh, enough. Folks, you have been listening to Andrea Perrin. Andrea, once again, thank you so much. Uh, may God bless you and your family, and we look forward thank to uh, working with you in the future. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Andrea. Good night. Shannon, that was an incredible interview. So what, what do you think about that? I would say the same. Just an incredible interview, incredible experience. And man, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time sleeping tonight, I think, a little bit. <laughs> that that kind of makes me just sort of uh, want to question every room in my house <laughs> yeah. at, all, at all times. All the time. You know, there, there were a couple of things that she said that, uh, that genuinely sent like chills up my spine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the stories uh, that I thought was interesting was when she said her mother was in the kitchen cooking mm-hmm. and she sort of had the feeling someone's watching her yeah. and she turns around and, and she sees these like spirits of the of like a, a family that would have been like over a hundred years ago based on how they were dressed and the furniture she talked about. Right. You know? yeah. And it was as it was as if she was looking at them in the into the past. And then she said that she got the feeling that they were looking at her into the future simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she said that she'd mentioned that one of the men kind of elbows one of the other guys there. Sure. And they kind of point over. And so that, that you know, notified her that they're looking at her. And so just the idea of seeing that, I mean, that's that's creepy, right? I mean, that that's scary and mm-hmm. supernatural and, and incredible. But when she goes on to describe the, the whole time reference, right? right? To me, that's that's really interesting. She said she had a hard time sort of picking out how time was occurring because it was almost yeah. like events were happening simultaneously, sometimes in the past, sometimes in the future, but in such a weird, bended kind of way that it was hard to pinpoint and say, this happened at this point, this happened at this point. It, right. It's like the timeline was sort of twisted and interconnected yeah. a little bit. Yeah, and that that really fascinates me uh, about this whole story. And then one other comment that she that she made, she was talking about how if, you know, uh, either herself or one of her sisters, if, if, if they were scared, they were, you know, they, they would, you know, scream out, right? Sure. But she said that, uh, I think she described it as being uh, in, a, in a bubble. And how, like, if you're having this, you know, one-on-one kind of interaction with, with the spirit realm, uh, that that you're in some other type of dimension is, mm-hmm. is is I think the way she best described it. And and even though you're screaming, uh, you know, she said, "quote uh, You're screaming uh, wh- where you are yelling from. No one can hear you." Man, that's, so even that's though the chill factor. Yeah. There so for even me. though you may be in your bedroom screaming, you're really not in your bedroom. Right. The sound waves aren't leaving there. I know. And that just, I don't know, that was something else that just totally fascinated me. That adds a whole other layer of terror because screaming doesn't help in that scenario. No one's coming. No No. one hears you because you're literally in a different place altogether. Yeah. 
that's, that's just that's that's wild. That's just it's hard to wrap to, to wrap your your mind around. But this is why it was a good interview. I mean, obviously, a lot of people have have heard of this story. Yep. Uh, again, my daughter was 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 a big fan of the movie, and and honestly, she's the reason why we did this. Oh, absolutely. You know, she yeah. she said, "Hey, watch this, Dad." Mm-hmm. And then I thought, "Hey, let's let's contact her." And so yeah, so it's kind of interesting how things just sort of spark and kind of the the, the uh, butterfly effect or domino effect or, or whatever it is, you know. Uh, so so thank you, Kennedy for uh, introducing us to Andrea Perrin. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. uh, Good idea. Yeah, and, and then always, you know, we can't thank Andrea enough. Uh, we've talked to her, and, you know, we've talked text, what, 15 times probably over the last, you know, several weeks, and she has been absolutely just terrific to oh, work she's with. Great. And we just can't thank her enough for her time. So Yeah, so thanks, Andrea. We, we really appreciate your time, and uh, we appreciate you coming on the show. We hope you'll stay in touch. We're very excited about the, the future. Thanks also to our listeners. We encourage you to subscribe to the show, share it with a friend. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us with the handle at SlapdashPod. And we will catch you in the next episode. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.